is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to episode 10, Tom and Theodosia's writing. We have cobbled together what little we could find about Tom and Theodosia's writing processes. It's not going to be a lot, but we do have some great examples of their work for you today. As with last time, we will start with Tom and then move to Theodosia. So what we could find about Tom's writing process comes mostly from his memoir, What I Remember. And he reminisces about learning how to write as a child and writes, Of arithmetic I knew nothing. I should write, quote, no, end quote. And of all that, arithmetic should be the first step to a fortiori, still less. I, I slaughtered that. <laughs> um, in the art of writing, I received the best possible instruction, for I was licked by my tutor and scourged by the masters if my writing was illegible. Of less indirect tuition, I had none. This is such a stark contrast from how Mary Elizabeth Braddon learned to write, even though she was not happy about her writing instruction either. I think it's quite interesting as well that he's, you know, he says that if his writing is illegible, he's basically punished by his masters, because there's a really interesting, I'll go back to his letters again, because I've just remembered while you were speaking. There's a really interesting letter that he writes to his daughter BJ, and he's saying, don't cross your letters. It's horrible. It's hard to read. It's much better to write things legibly. Which, as someone reading their letters, I'm really grateful for. Yeah, so if you've never looked at 19th century letters, often to save uh, or to use hmm, to economize paper, they would write the letter normally and then turn the page and then write across the lines they already wrote, which is what Eleanor was just referring to with the term cross the letters. And yeah. Yes. And there's one, here's a letter from May 1865. Do not get into the common young lady's habit of crossing your letters. It makes them very unpleasant to read. If you want to write more, then the sheet will contain, take a second sheet, two such sheets as this will go for a single postage. Hmm. <laughs> It's just really interesting that he writes to his daughter of these really practical considerations. Hmm. But to me, when, we, when we're talking about his masters punishing him for illegible handwriting, it really reminded me of that. It seems like it's an e-code with him into later life. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's so interesting that he um, would encourage his daughter to use more paper because especially, well, remind me what year that was. I'm sorry, I've already blinked. Oh, no, that was 1865. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, there were paper shortages and paper was extremely expensive for much of the middle of the Victorian period, to put it very loosely. So because paper, good paper, was made with linen and linen was in, in short supply. Yeah. And it's interesting that he considers the cost of postage, but not of paper when he writes that to her. 
Yeah, there's this weird um, contrast. No, there's this weird um, tension between the cost of illegibility and the cost of materials. Just a short digression. But anyway, Tom was, much like his mother, a very speedy writer and wrote, well, he, he thought about, uh, he thought a lot about the differences between writing from necessity or writing just because you can. So also in his memoir, he notes that, quote, upon one occasion, the occasion was that of sudden medical advice to the effect that it was desirable that I should take my first wife from Florence for a change of climate, which I was not in funds to do comfortably. I planned and wrote from title page to colophon and sold a two-volume novel of the usual size in four and twenty days. I had a, quote, turn of speed in those days in writing as well as walking. I could do my five miles and three quarters in an hour at a fair toe and heel walk, and I wrote a novel in twenty-four days. It was written indeed in twenty-three, for I took a whole holiday in the middle of the work. Of course, it may be said that the novel was trash— but it was as good as, and was found by the publisher to be more satisfactory than, some others of the great number I have perpetrated. I found the register of each day's work the other day. The longest was 33 pages. It was no great matter to have written three and 30 pages in one day, but I am disposed to think that few men, or even women, could continue for as many days at so high an average of speed. My brother used to say that he could not do the like to save his life, and that of all those dearest to him. And he was not a slow writer. Of course, when my book was done, I was nearly done too, but I do not know that I was ever any the worse for the effort. The novel in question was called Beppo the Conscript. So he's really proud of that, writing a novel in under a month. It's the Victorian NaNoWriMo, um, but he did it because he needed the money to take Theodosia for a change of climate for her health. I find it very interesting as well that he specifically says, this is something I can do that Anthony can't. Yes. I mean, I don't know. I've tried to do NaNoWriMo a few times, but with everything else going on in life, it's never worked out for me. So that's it's something that a, a lot of people couldn't do. And a two-volume novel is pretty big, especially in the Victorian period. Yeah, I don't know offhand how many words, but that is seriously impressive. Yeah, so he, he caps off this um, remembering of probably one of the most productive months of his life by saying, quote, No, I have not been an idle man since the day when my mother and myself decided that I was to follow no recognized profession. The long, too long series of works which have been published as mine will account for probably considerably less than half the printed matter which I am responsible for having given to the world. Nor can I say that I was driven to work, quote, by hunger and request of friends, end quote. During all my long career of authorship, there was no period at which I could not have lived an idle man. Not so well as I wished, certainly, but I was not driven by imperious necessity, end quote. So he's kind of backtracking a little to paint himself more as a man of leisure who decides to write novels because he can, not because he has to. Yeah, there's some quite interesting... I guess preservation of character in there, it's a lot more respectable to write because it's a kind of noble profession that you're interested in than because you have to to feed yourself and your family as his mother did. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, and 
By casting himself as somebody who doesn't have to do it from necessity, he can make more claims to being an artist or of producing capital L literature than otherwise. Yes. It's that classic thing in um, Budgers, the rule of art about art for art's sake. Yeah. Definitely kind of shapes a lot of the thinking about art and the period. Um, so I think that gives us a sense of attention that goes throughout his career of needing to do this to make ends meet or to ensure the health and happiness of his family, but of also wanting to be taken seriously. And the similarities his writing process bears to his mother's. Yeah, I might have mentioned before, but during the course of my research, I've compiled this database of what the Trollops, so Francis Milton, Francis Eleanor, Tom and Theodosia write. And for Tom, I have got, let me just do the maths. So basically, I've um, catalogued everything they write for periodicals. Tom writes. Yeah, so I've been able to find 214 works that Tom submitted to periodicals, and there may well be more because a lot of them aren't signed. Mm-hmm. So that is really an incredibly high number. Yeah, that's impressive. And I think what he writes of his early career in his memoir really speaks to that. He writes, quote, But I am surprised on turning over my old diaries to find how much I was writing and planning to write in those days, and not less surprised at the amount of running about which I accomplished. My life in those years of the 30s must have been a very busy one. I find myself writing and sending off a surprising number of, quote, articles on all sorts of subjects, Reviews, sketches of travel, biographical notices, fragments from the byways of history, and the like, to all kinds of periodical publications, many of them long since dead and forgotten. That the world should have forgotten all these articles, quote, goes without saying. But what is not perhaps so common an incident in the career of a penman is that I had, in the majority of cases, utterly forgotten them, and all about them, until they were recalled to mind by turning the yellow pages of my treasured but almost equally forgotten journals. I beg to observe, also, that all this penwork was not only printed, but paid for. My motives were of a decidedly mercenary description. Interesting. He's changed his tune. Yeah, I mean, this comes actually much earlier in the memoir, um, but I think, yeah, it's fascinating. He's talking about how much he's writing for periodicals and also saying that their their forgottenness goes without saying. He's really echoing a Victorian sense that periodicals were ephemeral, um, if not trash, then definitely a sort of literature that like a mayfly was there for a day and then gone the next and not something that leaves a lasting impact like a not well maybe not a novel like a monograph or a history or something much firmer and made to last yeah which is especially interesting when he's writing for quite i guess esteemed periodicals he's writing for places like the athenaeum and the cornhill Mm -hmm. it's not you know kind of penny fiction so it's a really interesting acknowledgement that even the more esteemed periodicals are really ephemeral. Yeah. He even, so I think it's really a great peek into an early career because he talks about, he talks about how often his articles were rejected 
He says, quote, they were rejected often, but redispatched a second and a third time if necessary to some other, quote, organ, and eventually swallowed by some editor or other. Which is great for a number of reasons. This is such uh, such a showcase in Victorian's thinking about and metaphors about writing. Um, but so the first point I wanted to make in, in quoting this particular passage is that really uh, what often separates successful writers from unsuccessful writers even today is the tenacity with which they send things out. Um, even in academia, there are studies about the fact that men get published more because they like just sort of ignore rejections and keep sending out over and over, whereas women scholars will tend to um, take critiques to heart and spend more time reworking and send out less often. So kind of fascinating that he's just, as soon as he gets one rejection, it sounds like he sends it back out again to another place. Yeah, and it's interesting that he doesn't mention any editing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, he may well be editing between we... these times, but... Yeah. I mean, because we know his mother helped him with editing at least books, and I wonder if um, if he's taking notes and making changes, or if he's getting the woman in his life to do that for him, like, in a secretarial capacity. But this is entirely speculation on my part. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the one of the real shames about the fact that periodical writing was seen as ephemeral, is if his drafts exist, I don't know where you'd find them, and I highly doubt they do exist. Which sort of leads to the next point, which is that in his capacity as a periodical writer, he considered himself a scribbler. He literally writes, quote, I'm surprised, too, at the amount of locomotion which I contrived to combine with all this scribbling. I must have gone about, I think, like a tax gatherer, with an inkstand slung to my buttonhole. And in truth I was industrious, for I find myself in full swing of some journey, arriving at my inn tired at night and finishing and sending off some article before I went to my bed. But it must have been only by means of the joint supplies contributed by all my editors that I could have found the means of paying all the stagecoaches, diligences, and steamboats, which I find the record of my continually employing. So he's going around traveling, writing all of these articles, like just scribbling them out really fast and sending them out. I also love this idea that he's like, I have no idea how I paid for that, but I must have somehow. Yeah, <laughs> just kind of blundering around, somehow succeeding. It's fascinating. I wanted to return to the passage I quoted just before this one, actually, a little bit. I had one more thing to say about it. He talks about, um, he starts to use food metaphors, which is another way that Victorians really conceived of less prestigious kinds of writing often. Well, writing in general, writing and reading. Um, but this was often associated with sensation fiction. I think we talked about this in a previous episode where um, certain kinds of literature were considered along the lines of tainted food or poisonous fare. Um, here it's just food in general. It was when readers, so it's the reader rather than the material, is compared to a sausage. Yes, yeah. It was in a recent episode. Um, there's a scholar that talks about this. Who am I thinking? It might be, I have my notes here, but they're all out of order. I want to say it might be Dallas Little, um, L-I-D-D-L-E, in a book he wrote on genre, and he talks about um, George Eliot, George Eliot's journalism, so Marian Evans' journalism, that, that was her 
that was her byline as a journalist um, and in fact her real name um, and the food metaphors associated with that if I'm not entirely misremembering listener I was entirely misremembering the scholar in question was actually Fanula Delane that's F-I-O-N-N-U-A-L-A Delane D-I-L-L-A-N-E and you can find her work on George Eliot's journalism and food metaphors linked in the show notes. But yeah, so both the um, these two attitudes about periodical writing, which Tom did a lot of and which I think seems to have founded his career in some ways, uh, might have shaped his approach to it, that you can churn it out really quickly because it's an ephemeral thing meant to be consumed and then moved on from in some ways. Yeah, and I think also it's like with anything where if you have enough experience, it becomes much quicker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the speed with which I turned out some of my graduate papers was astonishing. (laughs) So now we're going to turn to the slightly trickier part, which is figuring out how Theodosia wrote. A lot of this we do rely, again, on Tom's memoir. And he wrote of her that, quote, Many of her verses she set to music, especially one little poem lit, which I remember to this day the tune of, which she called the Song of the Blackbird, and which was, if I remember rightly, made to consist wholly of the notes uttered by the bird. Another instance of her, quote, multiform faculty, unquote, was her learning landscape sketching. Mm-hmm. I have spoken of her figure drawing. And this, I take it, was the real bent of her talent in that line. Unable to compass the likeness of a haystack myself, I was desirous of possessing some record of the many journeys which I designed to take, and eventually did take with her. And wholly to please me, she forthwith made the attempt, and though her landscape was never equal to her figure drawing, I possessed some couple of hundred of watercolour sketches done by her from nature on the spot. Yeah, so this... um really sort of gives a glimpse of her poem writing, but I thought it was really interesting that he described her her art in general as a multi-form faculty. So it sounds like she was very, uh, I want to say maybe multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary as a writer, that she drew on all of these different artistic modes to compose things. I don't know if that really applies to her nonfiction writing, though. I think it makes sense because a lot of her non-fiction writing is either on the Italian unification or on, it tends to be criticism of poetry. Hmm. I think she writes about art as well. But a lot of it is this kind of rich cultural tapestry. That's interesting. So it sounds like her process was very uh, interconnected, very fluid between all of the different things she pursued as a creator. Yeah, there's no obvious stop and start point. Yeah. So Tom writes of her handwriting that it is written on a sheet of the very small duodecimo note paper, which she was wont to use many years subsequently, but in far more delicate and elegant characters than she used, when much pen work had produced its usual deteriorating effect on her calligraphy. Yeah, like many intellectuals it sounds like the more deeply she was thinking about a thing or the further into a project she was the worse and worse her handwriting got which i think actually does tell us something about her process even if sort of obliquely yeah it definitely gives you this impression of a real scribbler of someone 
mm-hmm. who has all these thoughts in their head and they have to just get it down on paper before they forget. So Tom goes back to this relationship with Elizabeth Barrett Browning and he says that Theodosia and Barrett Browning were exceptionally but not equally gifted and it's unclear who he's speaking in favour of. It seems like it's possibly speaking in favour of Barrett Browning because on preceding pages he's quoted Theodosia's poetry to praise and to critique it. So he's not a husband that thinks his wife is the best because she's his wife. Mm. He's quite level-headed about this. Yeah, and probably, I mean, I think by the time that he is writing this memoir, Barrett Browning has really risen to her fame. Yeah. If he tried to do it the other way around, I don't think it would have been received exceptionally well. I mean, you only have to go to the English cemetery in Florence and see the difference in their graves. Mm -hmm. Because... EBB's is incredibly ornate and mm. made specially by, I can't remember the name of the sculptor, but it's this really ornate thing. And then Theodosia's is quite, not simple, but just tasteful. Yeah, it kind of speaks to their reputations at the time of their death. Well, unfortunately, that's pretty much all we have about Theodosia's process or all we've been able to gather um, with the resources that we had access to. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a little frustrating, but it gives you a little bit of a sense of how they wrote or who they were as writers. And we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will read you some samples of their work. Welcome back. Now we're going to turn to some examples of Tom and Theodosia's writing. So again, we'll start with Tom. He had a regular column on the subject of foreign correspondence in the Foreign Quarterly Review. And I've chosen one of his articles from November 1845. So he wrote it in November 1845. And then it's published in January 1846. And that gives some very interesting insight into the position of English people in Florence and also has a reference to Theodosia before the two officially met, I believe. So it starts, Florence, November 3rd, 1845. The anniversary of our flood. This time, 12 months, dear Mr. Editor, or somewhat later, I was writing to you of drowned streets, ruined merchants, and dismal looks on all sides. This autumn, thank heaven, our beautiful Florence presents a very different appearance, though a few croakers will persist in asking after every heavy shower that may occur how many inches the river has been observed to rise. But we enjoy our sunshine and bright skies and laugh at them. Truly this Italian autumn has reminded one of Fanny Kemble's beautiful lines to the American autumn. We may say with her, Thou comest not in sober guise, in mellow cloak of russet clad, Thine are no melancholy skies, nor hueless flowers pale and sad. But like an emperor triumphing, with gorgeous robes of Tyrian dyes, full flush of fragrant blossoming and glowing purple canopies. And as fate has kindly willed it, the peculiar beauty and the brilliancy of the season is witnessed and enjoyed by an unusually large concourse of our migratory countrymen. 
the police returns a few days since showed that there were then in Florence no fewer than between 12 and 13,000 English. We always expect rather large coves about this time of year, but the throng of this season is unprecedented. They swarm in the streets, in the theatres, in the churches, in the salons, in the galleries. Had they not the unmistakable cachet which stamps them British, ineffaceably imprinted on every lineament and gesture, they might still be known by the unfailing accompaniment of Murray's red guidebook. But a blind leader of the blind, be it said, en passant. For both the volumes on northern and central Italy are as imperfect and unsatisfactory as those on Germany are excellent. However, Murray's books are de rigueur, and it is difficult to traverse a street in Florence without encountering half a score of them. Their owners all are forming the most favourable notions of our climate, and will be ready on their return to swear that winter in Italy is a joke, and wintry blasts unknown. No Florentine, native or adopted, will undeceive them in the pleasing delusion. For it is here, as it should seem, an universal law to assure every Englishman who may chance to encounter wintry weather here that such an occurrence is unprecedented within the memory of man, that there never was such a season before, and never will be again. I trust for the credit of our Bella Firenze that the weather may not change before a good portion of our 12,000 visitors have left us. But I have passed too many winters here not to know how very likely it is that any morrow may change our baskings to shiverings, and send our astonished countrymen scudding across the Piazza di Duomo, before a wind which seems capable of cutting an oak in half, a tramontana with a fall of snow on the Apennine, and hey presto, Il bel cielo d'Italia is a poet's dream, and brick floors, fireless rooms, and wind admitting doors and windows become most unpoetic and rheumatic realities. Meanwhile, all are buzzing about as gay as summer flies and as busy. Cerito is here too, dancing at the pergola, where, to complete the delectation of our visitors, La Barbieri is singing in a style which would have long since caused her to be taken from us by London and Paris, had she wherewithal to charm the eye as potently as she does the ear. Here, we judge singers by the lateral. Literature is, as usual, showing that it is alive by painful and laborious heavings, under the superincumbent weight of censorships and obstacles of all sorts like the imprisoned giant under Etna, fighting the good fight bravely and perseveringly against all odds that can be brought against it. But the amount of perseverance, of courage, of faith and hope, which can hope even against hope, needed for the maintaining of the struggle, can scarcely be adequately estimated by any save those who have the opportunity of watching these matters de prey. And to one who does so watch the agonies of fettered intellect in Italy, the almost desperate game is truly heart-sickening. Paolo Emiliani Giducci has nearly completed his history of literature in Italy. As it is published in Fuscioli, after the manner so prevalent now in Italy, more so even than elsewhere, the portion finished is already before the public. Two chapters of the work abandoned to 164 octavo pages, touching Dante and his era, have been printed separately by the publishers as a preface to an edition of the poet which they are bringing out. But alas, the censorship of the papal government has discovered 32 propositions in it of erroneous tendency. Naples, etc., of course, follow the decision, and the work is excluded from more than half its market, and the people from the benefit of something like sound criticism and a just appreciation of the great men of their brighter day. 
in literary criticism, says the writer of a naval article in, on Italian literature in the Westminster Review of October 1837. In literary criticism, all here is truly void. Criticism is dumb, by which obviously he means speechless and not stupid. Since this was written, she has more than once given indication that she was neither dead nor sleeping and has endeavoured to raise her voice. And here we see the result. For nearly a century, the Dantescan criticism of Italy, as seen in the sterile labours of the dilettante academics, has been the scoff and byword of Europe. The endless and objectless multiplication of such empty dissertations, disputes on reading and word-catching verbiage has formed the staple of Italy Dantescan labours until quite recently was deemed by the rulers of Italy a safe and harmless employment for the leisure and intellect of her literati. As soon as none of the great and suggestive lessons with which the life, writings, character and opinions of the mighty exile are pregnant were drawn from the study of them, all was well, and benevolent princes were well content to patronise courtly academies, whose elegant scholarship busied itself only with words, and whose well-bred learning dreamed not of seeking beneath them for ideas which might disturb the placid dullness of their gentle literature. But another class of scholars has arisen. Major Rerum Nascitur Ordo, I don't speak Latin, so apologies, and lo, Dante and Dantescan studies are found to be no longer the safe ground of intellectual tilting matches they were once deemed to be. The less that is said about him, the better. The best consolation one can suggest to the author of a work thus excluded is the consideration that its admission into the Papal States would have been an irrefragable proof of its worthlessness. Yet it is a heart-sickening and uphill course that of a literary man who has any pretensions to be called such in Italy. I have seen the first volume of, Sid, of Signor Giducci's work on the history of Italian literature, from which this unfortunate preface to the Divina Commedia was extracted, and I can promise you, Mr. Editor, that when completed it will be well worth your notice. It may seem, perhaps, to English readers familiar with the names, and nothing more, of Christian Berni, Gimma, Quadrio, and Tiraboshi, that a new history of Italian literature was hardly needed. But I have sufficient faith, if not in the critical acumen, yet at least in the idleness of the readers of this our railroad-going epoch, to feel quite assured that a very cursory inspection of the works of these worthies of the 18th century would suffice to convince all who have any wish to inform themselves on the matter of Italian literature of the necessity of a guide on the subject rather more adapted in manner to the wants of a somewhat thinking, though ever-hurrying generation. Christian Berni was an Arcadian, and may be indeed deemed the father of all the Arcadians, as he was the first custode of the institution. This will be sufficient to enable those who have any knowledge of the Italian literature of the 18th century to form a sufficiently accurate estimate of his history. It is an enormous magazine of laboriously collected puerilities. Of the true essence and nature of poetry, Christian Berni was as profoundly ignorant as it is well possible for a lettered man to be. Poeta fit non nascitur must have been his motto, or at least his creed. And the making of a poet and of poetry he deemed might be accomplished by the observance of a set of minute word-regulating receipts. And truly, this method was so successful that such a brood of poets was formed from the worthless materials lying fallen in the dolce Farniente of Italian life, as utterly overwhelmed the unfortunate Arcadian chronicler, who deemed all equally worthy of a place in his temple of fame, 
yet found himself utterly unable to accommodate so numberless a band even in the capacious limits of his weighty volumes. The expedient that he adopted in this distress is worth mentioning, as it is probably not generally known, and as it serves pretty well to indicate the value of his often quoted work and the calibre of the writer's mind. He had recourse to a lottery. He placed since some thousand of names in an urn, and in the presence of Carlo Doni and Vincenzo Leonio, to guarantee fair play, he drew out a certain number, and of these composed the contemporary part of his history. A legally attested document recording the fact was deposited in the Arcadian archives. We were aware that fame sometimes was subject to optical delusions, but we never before heard of her willfully shutting her eyes and calling on blind fortune to award her crowns for her. Such, says Signor Giudici, is a history of Christian Bene. When I recollected the reputation it enjoyed, I concluded that few had looked into it and none perhaps examined it. But very many, from that sheep-like tendency to follow each other that seems inherent in human nature, have cited it and even still continue to do so. Even still, when the sad experience of fact and the example of the rapid progress of other nations ought to have freed us from our pernicious literary vanities. Gimmer, the second of the above-named writers, was an encyclopedic philosopher, according to the meaning of the term in his day, the beginning of the 18th century. He had an immense reputation among his contemporaries, but having found out, as Signor Giducci says, how much easier a thing it is to write of everything than of one thing only, he conceived the idea of a vast work on the history of the entire cycle of human knowledge in Italy, from Adam to the end of the 17th century. And when he had amassed in sundry huge volumes all he could collect on this enormous topic, he issued them as a specimen of the mighty work that might be expected from him when completed in its entirety. Humanity was, however, mercifully spared this infliction, and poor Gimmer died in Travai. Quadrio, in his history of every poet of every nation and of every age, gives a list of antediluvian poets and sets down Adam as the writer of the first canzoni which, according to a, the learned historian, may be found at the present day among the Psalms attributed to David. The reader will hardly, then, expect from the exceedingly erudite quadrio a history adapted to the reading once of 1845. To Roboshi's great work, useful and even indispensable as it is, as a book of reference, is the production of a pedant of a profoundly learned and indefatigably industrious one, but still a mere pedant adapted admirably by his nature and qualifications for the compilation of a chronicle, but utterly incompetent to the composition of a history. Moreover, the utility of his work is diminished, and all its proportions distorted by certain prejudices, which were also, in a great measure, those of his day. He worshipped Petrarch, the mightier mind of Dante he could neither appreciate nor comprehend. Still less had he any idea of setting forth or hinting at the influence which that truly creative intellect exercised on the eras which succeeded his own, not only in the world of literature, but in every department of human life. Quote, and when a literary history reveals naught of all this, cries Signor Giducci, what consolation are a dozen pages filled with an indifferent attempt at investigating biographical minutiae? I believe a translation of Signor Giducci's volumes is in progress, and I cannot doubt that they will be thankfully received in England. The first volume of a work on the history, theory and practice of animal magnetism has just made its appearance here, and is making rather a sensation in our little literary world. It bears on its title page the name of Professore di Simaccio Verati, but this is understood to be a nom de guerre, 
and the name of the real author is a profound secret. But the principal point of interest in the matter is the fact of the volume having passed the ordeal of the censorship. That it should have done so is attributed to two circumstances. Firstly, to the insertion of the following notice on the flyleaf. Quote, the author declares that he has treated the subject of this work purely as a philosopher, nor does he draw from it, nor ought his readers to draw from it, any of the least argument contrary to the holy doctrines of our Catholic religion, of which he professes himself a venerator and follower. And whenever anything too startling to the faithful occurs in the text of the work, he puts a footnote to say, please remember the declaration on the flyleaf. This mode of maintaining one set of opinions as a pure philosopher and holding another as a good Catholic is amusing enough, and it must be owned extremely convenient in a country blessed with censorship. It is to be hoped that the example may be followed, but the clergy are already screaming open-mouthed, and it is feared that the too lenient censor may find himself obliged to recall his license. If so, adieu to the author's forthcoming other four volumes. The second circumstance, supposed to have assisted this somewhat flimsy and transparent device of sweetening a whole volume of heterodoxy with one big lump of orthodoxy, thus put in after it was composed in Professor Verratti's book, is the fact that the censor is known, despite his ecclesiastical faith, to be an enthusiastic receiver of the doctrines of mesmerism, valiet quanium. It is to be supposed that he also has his official opinions and his own private conscience for home use quite separate. It is very manifest, however, that several of the Italian governments, especially ours here, and even Austria and Lombardy, are inclined to relax in the matters of censorship, and others similar, far more than Rome is inclined to permit. No symptom of amelioration, no glimmer of penetrating light is there visible, with the exception of the occasional lurid flashes of reiterated revolt the wonderful pertinacity with which she utterly refuses all amendment, hugs each abuse which is his sort to be rent from her, and flies in the face of the enlightened sense and opinion of progressive humanity, with an audacity now in the day of her weakness and decrepitude, more blindly, desperately daring than she ever ventured on, even in the days of her prime, is truly astonishing, and can be explained only on the principle of quem deus vult pedere prius dementat. The soberest and gravest of those who have the misfortune to live under her sway are convinced that no purification save that of fire, fire which shall utterly consume the entire framework of her present fabric, can have failed to amend or render her endurable by mankind. Europe may depend on it. The last day of the temporal dominion of Rome's bishop is near at hand. The late revolt was but a false start, a premature outbreak of some of the hotter spirits, whom the more formidable leaders of the contemplated insurrection were unable to restrain to what appeared to them a fitting moment it was a mere flash in the pan the real discharge of the piece will come presently probably in somewhat less than twelve months and in printing this mr editor you will be betraying no confidence revealing no secrets none are better aware of the facts i resided than members of the papal government many of them may perhaps hope that the crazy fabric may last their time speculating on their own senility and still more rapidly advancing decay the wisest among them are known to be hopeless and perfectly aware that their game is a desperate, nay, a lost one. One of those prophetical announcements which so often have preceded great events in the world's march and have contributed to bring them about is now current in Rome and much dwelt on by her ignorant and superstitious citizens, assisted doubtless by her wiser and designing ones. 
It is there very generally believed that it has been prophetically declared that the present wearer of the tiara will never have a successor. The pontiff is known to be in a very precarious state of health, and the above idea has very much quashed speculation in Rome as to the probable election of the conclave on the expected event of his demise. Notwithstanding the great arrears of improvement which all the Italian governments have to make up before they can approach the present point of European progress in its more favoured portions, we have recently had a pleasing indication that they are not all equally barbarous, and that our Tuscan prince is, indeed, facile princeps among them. Several of those who were obliged to fly to save themselves from the consequences of the late outbreak in the Romagna took refuge in Tuscany, and were by the authorities lodged in prison, till it should be decided what was to be done with them. The papal government made a formal demand that they should be given up. The Grand Ducal ministers met to deliberate on the matter, and it is said came to the determination of complying with the papal demand. Whereupon, says report, the Grand Duke steps aside and penned an order to the keeper of the Fortezza di Basso, in which the refugees were confined, directing them to be immediately sent to Leghorn, and thence by sea to Marseille, thus summarily cutting short the debates of his ministers on the question. Thus much is at all events certain that they were all sent to Marseille in contempt of the demands of the papal government, and every man presented by the Grand Duke with a suit of clothes and a Napoleon. Before closing this long and desultory letter, I must drop a word of caution to your art-loving readers, and end the discovery of a fresco by Raphael here, respecting which much nonsense has been written, designedly or ignorantly in the French and English papers. The fresco in question, painted on a wall of the refectory of a C-Devant convent, now occupied by a carriage builder, has been open to and well known by the Florentine artistic public for some years. It is undoubtedly a work of much merit, and used to be considered the production of some pupil of Perugino. It was then suggested that the, that master himself was the author of it. Suddenly, quite lately, it was proclaimed to be by Raphael, and his name was said to be discoverable in a cipher on the collar worn by one of the figures. Now any such cipher, did it exist, would of course prove nothing, and its existence seems at least problematical. A friend, a very competent judge in such matters, assured me that it required much faith to see the alleged letters in the marks in question, and that the person engaged in cleaning it refused to allow him, an artist well known here, to examine the wall closely on the pretense that the scaffolding was not strong enough to support two persons. In the next place, it would be extremely difficult to persuade those who are really well read in the history of art and artists that Raphael produced a work at Florence, which must have occupied him for a year, and concerning which history is utterly silent. To the best informed here, this consideration is decisive on the point. I am told, however, that certain Englishmen are in treaty for the purchase of the painting. What will a money-burdened Englishman not buy? In my own humble opinion, the newly discovered authorship of the paper was in all probability opportunely suggested contemporaneously with the idea that it might be successfully removed from its wall. It seems certain that one of the figures is a not uninteresting portrait of Raphael. Your readers, Mr. Editor, will not have forgotten, probably, a more interesting and more genuine discovery of this nature, which was made here two or three years ago, of a portrait of Dante on a wall of the Bargello. It will be easily imagined what a sensation the first uncovering of this genuine presentment of the great Florentine occasioned here, among both natives and foreigners. While a highly gifted young countrywoman of ours, whose name is not quite unknown to fame at present, but whom, if I am not much mistaken, a wider celebrity awaits, as the mead of translation by her of Nicolini's Arnaldo de Brescia, 
shortly to be published, Miss Theodosia Garrow produced a charming little poem on the discovered portrait. The Florentines were enchanted, and Nicolini, who had been exceedingly pleased by her translation of his magnificent tragedy, thought that he could not do better than return the compliment by translating her standards on the new portrait of Dante. The veteran bard's translation is about to be published here. And the young poetess's original will doubtless see the light some day. But in the meantime, I cannot resist giving you a stanza or two as a specimen of Nicolini's hand at translating English poetry into La Dolce Lingua. It is doing violence to the little poem thus to mar its integrity. But I dare not intrude the whole on your numbered pages, especially at the close of so long a letter. There was a poet mighty to dispel those mists of slavish ignorance which fold the infancy of ages. Stern and bold, he sang an awful strain of heaven and hell, bared to earth's rulers their iniquity, and grasped the burning truths for which men die. He wrote his thoughts in rapid throbs and tears on the awakening souls of harsh mankind, the precious ore of speech yet unrefined, rough with the gathered clay of barbarous years. His fiery spirit cleansed and sent it forth to be the music of the troubled earth. Still, Florentines, among your olive shades, and marble halls the poet's accents dwell. Point the bright flash of genius, smooth and swell, the trembling tone of love. Mid fragrant braids of blossomed vine from childhood's lips they throng, broken like running streams to sweeter song. He stands among you now, the selfsame form which dwelt upon the memory of the land, through convulsed centuries, in either hand he holds a sign of power, one fresh and warm from nature's sunny breast, the other fraught with the long-garnered wealth of human thought. Now for Nicolini's version. I'm actually not going to try to read this because I feel like it would be um, disrespectful to the entire Italian language, but <laughs> you can see it in our show notes. So he includes the Italian version of the poem, so, after the poem, he writes, I cannot but say that I think the translation but a flat and disappointing rendering of the original, even though the translator be the author of Giovanni di, Gi Giovanni da Procida and Arnaldo de Brescia. I am sure, however, your readers must agree with me in admiring the English stanzas I have sent them, and so, Mr. Editor, abuse me as little as may be for the length of my epistle, and farewell. So I'm going to read you a full example of Theodosia's poetry, but first, let's take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. Hi guys, Courtney here. I'm popping in to tell you about something cool I'm doing on Patreon this summer. As you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm taking my first ever trip to London in July. As a Victorianist, this is a momentous occasion for me. It's like returning to the mothership, as it were, and I am going to be doing as much exploring as possible in the time that I have there. And if you're a subscriber on Patreon at the $3 level or up, you can follow along on my Victorianist adventures. I'll be going to museums and galleries and libraries and doing walking tours and just generally taking in the sights and sharing my impressions with you via either vlog 
or audio journal. So sign up if you're interested at patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. This one is called She Is Not Dead But Sleepeth, and then I'm going to share one of her articles as well. She is not dead but sleepeth. Spellbound upon her couch of glittering sea, beneath her queenly starred canopy, wan, still, and breathless lieth Italy, the land of many woes. Her records are but wonder tales of yore. Men taunt her with the mighty sons she bore. The teeming nations breathe her name no more amid their freedom throes. She, from whose lavish breast they drew the tide, which formed and fed the sinews of their pride, she who outspread her royal robe to hide their infant nakedness, she who won forth their childhood shy and rude from the deep tangles of the virgin wood, tamed the fierce eye and checked the savage mood by precept and caress. She to whose sacred torch as pilgrims came, poet and sage, and kindled at its flame the lonely beacon of a hallowed name mid error's shifting sand. She the sweet singer, she the teacher wise, the valiant, proud, and beautiful, now lies theme for cold scorn and venomed pleasantries to that unfeeling band, who use her for an hostelry and dare to thaw them in the, her sun and drink her air, while churlish guests they quarrel with their fair, trampling the prostate land. She lies for dead, the sullen air around hangs motionless, save that with drowning sound an aged priest with eyes upon the ground mutters the death prayer low, and that sometimes her helpless children raise a feeble wailing for the ancient days, and that with rustlings faint the crown of bays drops piecemeal from her brow. Yet often as the hour of storm descends, on neighbor shores, and the strong change wind bends their loftiest glories reed-like to its ends. Still may the world behold a shudder creep along her limbs supine, a gasping heave, a mournful speechless sign. O oh, mother, in that once strong heart of thine, the stream is not yet cold. Thou fair enchanted queen, whom baleful lore would hold in chains of sleep forevermore, alas, the age of simple trust is o'er, no faded paladin comes o'er thy mountain walls, armed cap a pea, nor from the borders of thy tideless sea, with the warm clasp of love to waken thee, to woo thee, and to win. Do thy sons murmur? Let not one or two attempt the work ten thousand hands should do. What foe can house where hopeful, firm, and true, stirred by a single will, the dwellers of the soil day after day, Seek, seize, loosen, uptear each lingering stay of tyranny, and round their homesteads slay the fibrous roots of ill. Fling wide the doors, and let the echoing strife, the fresh, strong current of our northern life, rush o'er her brow. This sluggish air is rife with treacherous perfumed rests. Plot no more, or plot all. Who may defy a nation linked in vast conspiracy? Who shall resist thy sons, O Italy, if once more freedom blessed? And it's postscript Bogne de Lucha, July 14, 1845.
I didn't actually um, scan this poem, but I think the meter is very similar to the Lady of Shalott, which we'll actually be doing a performative reading of in about a week after this episode airs, so you can compare. But I was definitely getting rhythmic flashback from that. Yes, it is similar. It's a very strong meter. Mm -hmm. The next thing that I'm going to read for you is a, an article or um, a letter in the foreign correspondence of the Athenaeum dated June 20th, 1857, and this is written from Florence on June 4th. Every Sunday and feast day for the last three weeks are Florentine Baudauds, Baudauds? <laughs> I have no idea. Bacheri, we call them here, a term which indicates a pretty similar degree of intellectual capacity to that implied in the French name, may have been seen hanging for hours together over the fences of the Cassine, now in the full flush of summer beauty. There they assiduously contemplated, as their want is, certain slight erections of woodwork and canvas, lately set up in one of the spacious meadows skirting the large red and white edifice, half palace, half dairy farm, which forms one side of the so-called piazzone. This piazzone, well known to many a reader, of the Athenium is the favorite evening resort of gentle and simple, the cream and skim milk of our lotus-eating community. In its open space, the band plays, carriages and horsemen prance and jostle, and from six o'clock to long after sundown, the whole concourse of loungers forms a laughing, flirting, gossiping, party-colored medley on the border of the central grass plot, enjoying the fresh air of the Apennines, in contented fellowship and goodwill. It was some time before the inquiring public could obtain any satisfactory insight into the heart of the puzzle. Our paternal government is not over-communicative with its inquisitive children. At last, however, it began to be noised abroad that an exhibition of animals, Esposione di Besti, as it was familiarly called, was to be opened for seven days, beginning from the 1st of June, in the immense farm building attached to the palace and the succursal wood and canvas erections, which had cost Arbiciri so much hard staring and such an outlay of incongruous conjectures. But this information, simple as it seemed, only threw its hearers into a fresh mistake. For in Tuscan vernacular, the word bestia, when not used in an uncomplimentary sense for dolt, booby, or blockhead, signifies, as with us, any four-footed creature, wild or tame. Now, it never entered into unpositive Florentine brains to conceive that those in authority would dream of spending the sovrano's money, for the Grand Duke's treasury alone was to produce the requisite funds, and turn his house, as it were, out of windows, for the sake of exhibiting a few humdrum sheep and oxen which people could see every day as well in the Cassine pastures. So they took it for granted, simple souls, in a grand display of lions and tigers, or at least of choice bears and wolves, in such like home productions, must enter of necessity into the plan of the intended exhibition. We ultramontane barbarians, indeed, as more conversant with such outlandish doings, protested that nothing more was in project than a sort of cattle show or nay. 
But we were speedily laughed down for want of discernment or imagination, and the laughers went on staring harder than ever, while red and white flags began to flutter on the roofs of the buildings. Cartloads of flowering plants went swaying and jolting into the enclosure. The basti took their places in pens or dens, as the case might be, and the first esposione agraria, agricultural exposition, ever known in Tuscany, opened its doors with the befitting flourish of metaphorical trumpets in the journals and other public means of announcement at eight o'clock on a glorious Italian summer morning. Five carriagefuls of grand ducal personages were received outside the gates at that early hour by the ministers and chief public functionaries and conducted over the exhibition with due solemnity. After them followed the signoroni, as the Florentine expressively but familiarly calls the wearers of the great old names of his city. And toward ten o'clock, there poured in a huge jumble of all ranks and ages. By far the larger proportion of these visitors were contadini and artisans of the poorest class. For with a breadth of purpose well worthy of imitation in more pretentious communities, the esposizione is open gratis to the public on every day but one which is to be kept sacred to the susceptibilities of the more fastidious by the payment at the doors of one Paul, five pence halfpenny, entrance money. But to show how strong a hold the wild beast theory had taken on the fancy of our Bichiri, I may mention that I myself heard a sturdy cab driver, who had made half a dozen jaunts to and from the Cassine in the course of the forenoon, and therefore ought to have known better, address an ancient cobbler looking up from his little out-of-door workshop all agape for information with, I say, Cachino, they have been at their wit's end ever so long for a wolf, but now I hear they've caught one at last. Within the last two hours, however, I have made myself competent to vouch by the assurance of my own senses for the non-existence of so uncanny a denizen in any of the admirably arranged and tastefully decorated divisions of the exhibition. The nearest approach to ferro nature that I could discover consisted in a small wild boar, rusticating in a very well-guarded pen in one corner of the spacious swine house. It would be giving a very poor impression of the place to call it a pigsty. And even he seems to have left half his fierceness behind in the Maremma thickets, in spite of the very eloquent wonder and dislike with which a group of young peasant girls were examining his surly black visage. The large central court of the palace is lined with cages containing a great variety of beautiful domestic fowls of home and foreign breeds, Cochin China having, as usual, a number of its bulky representatives among them. From this court, which seems the favorite lounge of the rising generation, I followed the crowd, like goosey gander of erratic memory, very literally upstairs and downstairs, and as it seemed to my weary limbs, through half the ladies' chambers, at least, of this roomy summer dwelling. All were lined alike with long tables laden with specimens of the rich agricultural products of Tuscany, including numberless samples of oil and wine, cheese, honey, butter, hams, and pig's faces. The next point of interest is to be found in the vast ranges of stables and cowhouses in the rear of the palace, now occupied by no less than 212 head of cattle, a number of horses, mules, and asses, in great part from the Grand Duke's Pizan Hurrah, together with goats, sheep, and pigs, all possessing, no doubt, their share of peculiar attraction for the visitors. 
A large proportion of the enormous cattle exhibited display, no doubt, the points which connoisseurs delight in, and their satin skins and massive dimensions are appreciable even by the unskilled in such perfections. Several of the bulls and cows have already gained prizes at the Paris and London exhibitions, and the true-bred Britons among them stand out as worthy and colossal samples of the unroast beef of Old England. But a group of huge white oxen from the Val di Chiana, looking able and willing to carry the temple of the god Apis on their mighty shoulders, and an almost equally immense but more picturesque-looking black bull with a vast deal of character, not of the most inviting amiability in his countenance, were to all appearances well able to bear comparison with the insular bovine celebrities. There was a pleasant touch of artistic feeling, too, in the choice of the appropriate rustic uniform, if I may apply such a word to the bright purple blouse seamed with white and cap to match, worn by the numerous herdsmen of the Grand Duke, who stood and strayed about the cowhouses and stables in attendance on their sleek charges. The stalwart, sunburnt young fellows, with their bright black eyes and hair, made no mean addition to the scene, stretched on the straw, as many of them were, beside their cattle, with the picturesque keeping of a fat expre. A prey. A most. <laughs> a fate. Ech prey. I don't even know. I'm going to leave it at that. A most attractive appendage has been added to the exhibition, in the shape of a really beautiful flower show, arranged in the gardens through which the visitors pass to reach the meadow destined for the display of the steam plow and other instruments of husbandry new to the Tuscan agriculture. Numbers of new flower beds have been laid out at great expense for the display of rare and delicate shrubs. A considerable portion of the flowers is very tastefully arranged in long lines of tall, gothic-pointed niches or booths composed of reeds and gaily ornamented, each booth bearing a label with the name of the contributor of the flowers. The geranium show, a rare thing on this side of the Alps, is exceedingly fine, and the contributions from the already celebrated greenhouses and hothouses of Prince Demidoff are equally remarkable for their beauty, their rarity, and their excellence of arrangement. Passing through this pleasant wilderness of scents and colors, I found myself on the Cassine Meadow, face to face with those mysterious buildings of wood and canvas which first set our childish world a-guessing. They seem to be only a temporary shelter for a few camels from the Grand Ducal Pisan farm, some vicious-looking buffaloes, and the long-horned oxen with which Pinelli's etchings first brought us acquainted. So after making a circuit of more than a mile and a half, a little grass path brought me back again to the Piazzone, crowded with vehicles of all descriptions, and knots of bareheaded contadine loitering under the trees, talking over the bestia with their rustic swains, and busily plying the knitting needles or the straw plate all the while. This exhibition is said to be the first of a series of yearly similar agricultural displays destined to take place here, which, if conducted with the free-handed discernment which places this one within the reach of those whom it is principally calculated to benefit, will assuredly contribute much to the material prosperity of Tuscany. Her moral promise just now cannot be considered quite so flourishing. For other countries, it is said, are waiting in terror for the 13th of this month and the advent of the comet. We too tremblingly look out for a pretentious sign in our political heaven, 
one, two, which draws a like blood-red train behind it, and threatens us with spiritual pestilence and famine. I mean the expected visit of the Pope to Florence. His Holiness's residence at Bologna is to extend, we are told, two months. Splendid preparations are afoot to welcome hither the servant of servants, with all due magnificence, and 200,000 scudi are said to have been taken from the Bolognese savings bank to be lavished in his honor. Because of his journey, Florence wards, if indeed he take heart of grace and cross the Apennines in the dog days, is reported to be the conclusion and ratification of the long-projected concordat law in Tuscany. The halting success of this, Rome's darling Panacea, in Austria and Lombardy, does not seem likely to deter Pio Nono from trying its counter-irritant qualities on another vile body, probably more unresisting than the last. All I can say is, may these tender mercies be yet far from us. But in the shade of the lurid prognostications now rife on all sides, I cannot help mentioning a scrap of dialogue which our old friends Paskin and Marfurio have been holding together since the Pope turned his back on the Quirinal, and which may serve to show in what a friendly light the Roman people regard shrewd Cardinal Antonelli and his patent French bayonets. Says Paskin to his neighbor, Hark ye, friend Marforio, do you know that the shepherd is gone a-gallivanting? Gone, is he, quoth old Marforio, and pray what's to become of the flocks. Oh, my dear friend, returns Pesquin, he has left the dogs at home on purpose to keep them in order. A fitting pendant to this dialogue is the caricature now keeping the said irreverent muttons on the broad grin of the pontiff taking a quiet evening stroll with a huge cigar in his mouth labeled the revenue and answering the familiar query of a passerby as to what his holiness may be about with the idiomatic and pithy phrase mila fumo which may be paraphrased into doing my best to smoke it out and truly, Romagna is spending her hungry children's money right and left just now for that which is not bread. Worthy old Saint Renieri, Pisa's patron time out of mind, will hardly be able to resist the temptation of sending a pelting shower to deluge the illumination lamps of his recreant city, if, as is intended, his reverence be mulcted of his aged honors, and the beautiful luminaria disrespectfully put off from the eve of his feast day to grace the advent of the father of the crusade. THT I thought those were both interesting to consider. Both because I imagine everybody already knows that the Pope in 1845 wasn't the last Pope, as Tom predicts. Obviously, we still have a Pope in 2018. Mm -hmm. But Theodosia has these same very anti-papal opinions. It's very British of them, actually. Yeah, it's an interesting combination of the very rampant anti-Catholicism that was around in this time, and also, I think, a reaction to which might be related, blaming the problems in Italy on the Pope and Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should say very 19th century British. Oh yeah, I yeah, wasn't taking um, offence, don't worry. Yeah, it's in interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I just sort of realised what I had said after I said it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but 
Um, as you point out, there's this really sort of attempt to present the the peasantry as these pure, childlike, simple, and good because simple beings in contrast to the pageantry and like expense of the of the papal of their papal superiors this is a good time for a break we'll be back right after this It was really just interesting on a very a much more surface level to think about as I read this how similar it would be to any sort of write-up about a county fair in a newspaper today. It's just got that journalistic tone of like walking around the exhibition grounds and taking in all the sights and reporting back. Yeah, it is very generally familiar in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in a way that I don't think Tom's was, even though it was still journalism, it didn't necessarily have the same journalistic tone. Yes, his is... It's interesting that these both are pieces entitled Foreign Correspondence, and his seems to be trying so much harder to be literary criticism mm-hmm. rather than just the kind of quoted in, this is what happened today in Florence. Yeah, I can kind of imagine him, like pulling that move that students sometimes do where you give them a very specific assignment in a specific genre and they like start off that way sort of but then take a hard left turn and do like hard theory or or use it as a pretext to talk about this topic they really like like write a paper on dickens and then all of a sudden it veers off into batman somewhere (laughs) (laughs) i imagine that he already had this column of foreign correspondence maybe tried to pitch this literary criticism and didn't get it accepted, so it was like, well, I'll just put that on the end. I'll talk about the Brits' opinion of Italian weather, which is very British, and then just change it to the uh, literature. I think this is the first time we've talked about um, nonfiction in our in one of our in one of our writing episodes, and this actually we should feature more nonfiction because it's so pervasive actually periodicals are they're like estimated and this is a low ball 125,000 separate newspapers magazines and other kinds of periodicals in England alone um, much of which were filled with nonfiction and so if if you think about it in terms of sheer word count nonfiction wins the day yeah and I think especially for these two I mean I already said that Tom published something around 200 pieces in periodicals, and most of that was non-fiction other than a few books that were serialised, including Beppo the Conscript and Theodosia. There's a couple of her poems get published, but she published 106 pieces in periodicals, and kind of a good 90 of them are non-fiction, which is kind of why I really want to talk about their articles today, because it is what they 
the majority of what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of more defines their writing careers. Well, especially if you take Tom's own desire to be thought of more as a historian than a novelist into account, their nonfiction would definitely be more characteristic of them as, or of them as they wanted to present themselves as writers. Absolutely, yeah. And I just wanted to add that if you do want to read any of Tom's fiction, I would recommend a piece called How Mio Varela Won His First Love, which was published in Temple Bar, volume 33, which appeared in November 1871. It's just a, it's a fairly short piece, and it's a good showcase of the Italian influence and quite reminiscent of the butt in some ways, especially in its ending. Mm-hmm. Which hopefully isn't a spoiler. Interesting. I'll have to dig that up. Sounds like a good... I really like sharing short fiction on this podcast as well because there's this misconception that the Victorians didn't write short fiction, which is absolutely not the case. Yeah, right. Like the most commonly read, I guess, today would be the Three Deckers there. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they were very common in the period, but they're not all that there is. Yeah. Okay, so that is all we have for you today. Um, Next week, next Friday, you should tune in for the first episode of our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians, when Eleanor and I attempt to answer the question, what is adaptation? And also talk a little bit about why adaptation might matter in terms of the 19th century. Yes. Yeah, the only other thing I would add is I do have this database, and if you're interested in reading more of either Tom and Theodosius articles or Theodosius poetry, just get in contact with me on Twitter and I will send you something over. Yeah, sounds fun. Okay, so thank you for listening. Thank you. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. John J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Today's break music is Domenico Zippol's Gavada in D minor, performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni and available on museopen.org under a Creative Commons Attribution License. 
Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball. 